Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. Today I'm going to talk to you about a guy that seemed to have a black cloud following him wherever he went. Everyone has rough times, but this guy just couldn't escape tragedy. Shortly after each event, he received a large insurance check and people start to wonder, was he the cause of these horrific events? Here we go. This is the case of Carl Carlson. In 1991, Carl Carlson lived with his wife, Christina, and their three young children. The children's names were Aaron, Levi, and Katie. They were a happy family and lived in Northern California in a country area. They hadn't always lived there, though. They had lived in New York, and Christina's father told Carl if he ever wanted a job working for him, all he'd have to do would be to pack his family up and move across the country to California, and that's where Christina is from and the rest of her family still live. So one day, he decides the family is going to do just that. They'd move to California. Christina would be closer to her family, and they could raise the children there. They bought an older house, and Christina redid the whole house. She's sewing curtains. She's painting. The house is older, and it's going to take a lot of work, but she did a great job with it. Now, in 1991, their house catches on fire while everyone is home. It was the middle of the day. This would be a huge fire. There were three different fire departments that arrived at the scene, and they said the entire house was engulfed with flames. They were told there was a woman inside the house. The husband, Carl, and his three children, Aaron, Levi, and Katie, were outside and made it out okay. But the firefighters know this is a rescue call. There is still someone in that house, and they need to get her out before she dies. The fire chief makes a very difficult decision, one that's going to haunt him for the rest of his life. He decides that it's too dangerous for him or any of the firefighters to enter the house. I can't imagine having to be the one to make that call. He decides no one is going back in that house. So their next move was called surround and drowned. It's when they just begin soaking the house with water and hopes the fire will go out and whoever is in there has a chance to get out before they die of smoke inhalation or burn to death. After the fire is put out, they carefully enter and he hears one say, I found her. Christina was 30 years old, a beautiful and caring wife and mother. Everyone described her as a wonderful person and friend, and they all said how she was really tiny. She was only 4 foot 11 inches tall. It was a major blow to her family, and everyone is devastated. Her husband, Carl, and three young children had escaped and were being treated in an ambulance. The children tell the paramedics their dad had saved them. They also said they were sad because their Christmas presents had burned and their mommy went to heaven. The paramedics said the children seemed to be in shock and were giving really short answers. Everyone is praising Carl for his heroic efforts of getting the children out of the house safely. Even if he couldn't save his wife, he managed to save the children and the situation could have been a lot worse. Carl gives his version of events. He says the day the fire happened, Christina was taking a bath. The three children were taking naps. He was in the garage working on a motor, and he hears someone yell, Carl, get the kids. He comes out of the garage and sees smoke coming out from under a door. He runs over to Levi's window. He breaks the window and immediately feels heat coming out. He pulls his son Levi out. 
and then he runs around to Aaron and Katie's window. The two little girls shared a bedroom, and he does the same thing. Aaron is only six, and she helps her three-year-old sister Katie climb out of the window. Both the little girls are hysterical. He tells them to go over in the yard away from the house and stand next to their brother. Christina is still trapped in the bathroom where she was bathing. Now, Carl can't get her out of the house because their bathroom window was boarded up and the fire is coming from right outside the bathroom door. Carl says he heard nothing coming from the bathroom, no screams, no banging. She was already dead. The bathroom she was barricaded in was like a coffin to her. She took her final breaths there. Some of Carl's family flies out to California so they can help him. He's now a single dad with three young children. His wife just died. Their home and possessions are gone. What is he going to do? They said when they got there two days after the fire, he was still wearing the same clothes he wore during the fire. His family tells him he is welcome to take the kids back to New York and raise them there. Well, four days after the fire, he packs the kids up and moves back across the country. Well, this would devastate Christina's family. All they have left from their sister are those three little kids, and now they're moving to upstate New York. Christina's sister says her and her sister made a pact that if something ever happened to one of them, they would make sure that kids would always be taken care of. Well, it's hard for Christina's sister to do that when the children's dad is moving them thousands of miles away. That and all of this is very fresh. It's been less than a week since everything happened. Over the next few years, Christina's family does make trips to visit the kids, and they always told them stories about their mom. Plus, Christina's sister was talking to them on the phone multiple times during the week. I know I'm jumping ahead here, but I wanted you guys to know that Christina's family was still active in the children's life, even after they had left. The state fire marshal goes out to the scene. He noted there was a strong smell of kerosene kind of lingering everywhere. Carl said it was from two days before the bath before the fire when one of the pets knocked over a kerosene jug outside of the bathroom. The pattern showed that this was where the fire had begun. The fire marshal also made it clear that with the fire's origin being right outside the bathroom door and the only window being boarded up, there would have been no way she would have escaped. If she wa- if she walks out of the bathroom door, she would have immediately died due to inhaling the mass amount of smoke. One thing the fire marshal questioned was that Carl made strong efforts to get his children out of the house, obviously. He had a garage right there, though. He could have walked over and got a hammer or anything, really, and tried to break down the board on the bathroom window. They bring this up to law enforcement, but the district attorney states that there's not enough evidence that it was anything more than just a very tragic accident. There's no proof of any wrongdoing. A pet knocked over a kerosene can, and a day or two later, the house catches fire is pretty much the whole story. Where Carl is in New York is very upstate. It's kind of like farmland with lots of fields and cows and, and, and so on. He's trying to restart his life as a single dad of a son and two daughters. His family lived close by, so they were always looking out for him and helping with the three kids. He was kind of lost during this time and said he wasn't a mom and didn't know how to do mom-type things. He was confused about setting them up in school. He had to schedule their doctor's visits. These were things that his wife always took care of for him. 
1992, this is one year after the fire, he meets a lady named Cindy at a bar. He tells her he's a single dad and he lost his wife in a house fire and he wasn't able to save her. They started dating and she gets introduced to the kids. Now, Cindy doesn't have any children of her own, nor is she able to have any. So this is like a perfect little family for her. Her and Carl get married in 1993. They move into a large farmhouse, and then Cindy gets news that she's pregnant. This was shocking because she was always under the impression that she couldn't have children. Her and Carl have a little boy named Alex. So now they've got Levi, Aaron, Katie, and Alex. The four kids are very close, especially Alex and Levi, because they're the two boys in the family. The family owns these Belgian draft horses on their farm. They're these huge horses, and some of them are like the biggest in the world. They remind you of Clydesdales. They're really expensive, and they need a lot of care. I looked up some pics of them, and they really are gorgeous creatures. Some years pass, and Levi is now a teenager, and he's struggling. He's failing school, and he's acting out. Carl was hard on Levi, much harder than the others. Him and Carl didn't get along at all. It's later revealed that Carl was abusive to Levi and would often strike him. When Levi turns 17, he decides he wants out of that house and he leaves. He kind of just stayed with different family members. He didn't have a job or any real work experience, so he's a broke 17-year-old just trying to survive. In 2002, this is 11 years after the fire, Carl has his next major event. Their family barn catches on fire. It's the dead middle of the night. This was another big fire. The barn is fully engulfed by the time the firefighters got there, which really sounds familiar. Carl is yelling that his horses are inside. Remember, these aren't your average horses. These are Belgian draft horses, very prized, expensive, and large horses. I'm not saying one horse is more important than another horse, but just for the context of the story, I want to make it clear these horses were valued at a lot of money. A few days after the fire, the barn gets leveled. The horses needed to be pulled out by a machine because they were so heavy. They get buried, and Carl is upset but not overcome with emotion. He knows this is just another event that happened, and he'll have to deal with it. Carl says he always left a radio on for the horses, and he believed a spark from the radio caused the fire. The fire marshal decides the fire was an accident, so no one questioned it. Although it seemed pretty strange that this was the second fatal fire that happened when Carl was present. One person that believed the fire wasn't intentionally set was Levi, Carl's son. He even came over one day and made a comment to his dad about it, and his dad flipped out on him. The two end up getting into a fist fight. Le- Levi leaves, and he says he's done with his dad for a while. Over the next couple years, Levi made a lot of progress in his life. He gets married, and he has two little girls. Him and his wife were still very young. I'm talking like 20, 21 years old. And their marriage doesn't last, and they get a divorce. But Levi still has visitation with the girls on the weekends. He would bring the two little girls to his dad's house, and he would spend the weekend with them there. Levi gets a really good job, and he's paying his bills, and he's paying his child support. He's got health insurance now, and he's doing great. He's only 23 at this point, and everyone noted he was doing the best he's ever done in his life. 
One day in 2008, Levi goes to his dad's house to work on a truck of his that he was keeping there. He was keeping it in their new barn. Well, Carl and Cindy leave because they have to go to a funeral for a relative. Carl says he's going to go check on Levi in the barn before him and Cindy leave, make sure that Levi had all the tools and whatever he needed since they were going to be gone a few hours. Carl checks on Levi, and then he gets in his car, and him and Cindy drive to the funeral. They get home a few hours later, and Levi's car is still sitting out front. They thought he would have been long gone by then. Carl goes into the barn to check on him and comes screaming outside for Cindy to call 911. Levi is trapped underneath the truck. He had been that way for quite some time, and he wasn't breathing. Levi died at 23 years old. He left behind two little daughters. This was 17 years after his mother, Christina, died in that horrible house fire. This is hard for me to talk about. Carl is distraught, and he's throwing himself against a wall. He's clawing at himself. But I won't compare my situation to Carl's because in the end, it wasn't true grief that Carl was experiencing, and you'll see why in just a little bit. Cindy and Carl's brother, Mike, are starting to think quietly to themselves, why is bad luck following this guy around? Why has he suffered so many tragic events? Cindy discovers that 17 days before Levi died under that truck, Levi had taken out a life insurance policy for himself. He stated he wanted to be sure that if anything happened to him, his girls would be taken care of. It's a pretty responsible thing for him to do at 23 years old. His dad tells him that the money wouldn't be able to go to his daughters because they're like three and four years old. He says, look, just make me the beneficiary. I'll make sure the money gets dispersed to the two girls if anything should happen to you. Carl collected $700,000 for his son's life insurance. The two little girls never saw a dime. Carl is rolling through the money. He's getting work done to him and Cindy's new house because they had moved after Levi had passed away. They moved to another part of upstate New York. Carl saw this opportunity where he would buy this gourmet duck farm. What it entailed was raising these ducks, slaughtering them, and then they would get sent to high-end restaurants in New York City. So he has this mass amount of ducks he's taking care of. Carl and Cindy were even featured on the Food Network channel on one of their shows. Basically, a crew comes out and documents the process of the gourmet duck farm. Carl was ecstatic. He thinks it's some he's some kind of celebrity. He's already got this huge ego, and being on a TV show just sent his ego over the top. Meanwhile, Cindy can't help but shake the feeling that Carl is responsible for Levi's death. She's drinking heavily and feeling bad all the time. She felt scared as well, as she was afraid that he was going to think about doing something to her. Carl's brother, Mike, felt the same way. Something about Levi's death just didn't sit right with him. Meanwhile, Christina's family is in California. Remember his first wife that died in the fire? Well, they've lost Christina and now their son, Levi. Her son, Levi, I should clarify. <laughs> Remember before Cindy and Carl left for the funeral? Carl said he wanted to go and check on Levi in the barn. Cindy doesn't want to believe that she married a murderer, but something about that moment is haunting her. Did, did Carl somehow make the truck fall on Levi before he left? She's trying to talk herself out of believing it and thinks she's just being paranoid. 
She stays married to Carl and lives her life every day, but it was always on the front of her mind. One day in 2012, Cindy told some of her friends that she thinks Carl may have killed Levi. They suggest that she hire a private investigator, so she does, a man by the name of Steve Brown. Cindy explains everything that happened back in 2008 when Levi died, and she said the thing that bothered her the most was that Carl went in the barn to check on Levi before they left. The two of them, Levi and Carl, were alone in the barn for a few minutes together. Steve decides he's going to befriend Carl to see if he can get any info out of him. He can't go to him and say, hey, your wife hired me to investigate you. So he decides he's going to pretend like he's some sort kind of promoter of his duck business. Carl would lap this up. Remember, Carl has a huge ego, and he, it, he would think that this is something that he could benefit from, and it would make him feel important. Steve spends some time with Carl, and they hit it off. But before Steve could really kick things off, Steve's private investigation services were no longer needed. One of Cindy's friends that she had confided in went to police themselves. A detective called Cindy, and she was relieved when she got when she got that call, and she gave them all the info she had about that day. They were shocked to learn that there was a $700,000 life insurance policy on Levi that was taken out two weeks before he died. This changed everything. The detective does some digging, and he finds out that back in 1986, Carl got a payment of $10,000 when his car caught on fire. Then in 1991, he collected $200,000 for Christina's death. The horse barn fire paid out $115,000, and now $700,000 for his son's death. Do you guys want to know what's really chilling? It's later revealed that there were life insurance policies on both of Levi's daughters. Cindy decides she's done with Carl. She's ready to leave. She packs up her stuff and her son Alex's stuff. Remember, Alex is the son that she shares with Carl. He's a teenager now. They leave Carl's house. She was scared that if she stayed there and he found out that, number one, he's being investigated, and number two, she's the prime person doing all the talking, who knows what he would do. Cindy and Alex are jumping around from hotel to hotel for a while. Carl is blowing up Cindy's phone, but she's ignoring him. Finally, she comes up with a plan that might help get him put away faster. She says she's going to secretly record Carl. She thinks if she can convince him to tell her that he was responsible for the horses that died in the barn that day, she could take that to police and they'd see his true character. So she wears a little recording device hidden in her clothes and goes to meet with them. She tells him, look, I want to get back together with you, but I feel there's secrets that you haven't told me yet. You need to start telling me the truth. Well, Carl bypasses the whole horse barn event and goes straight to his son. Cindy is shaken because she came here to get a confession about the horses and he jumps right to his son. This could be life-changing. Carl tells Cindy, it sounds like you want me to confess that I killed my son. Cindy asks Carl, what happened that day in the barn? He said the truck was jacked up and it wasn't hard for him to push the jack stand and it just landed on Levi and he didn't help him. 
They talk some more and wrap things up, and Cindy leaves to head to the police station. She's ecstatic and anxious. She has a secret recording in her possession of Carl confessing to the murder of his 23-year-old son. She runs in and tells the detective, you will not believe what I have. They hook it up to a computer, and the audio is corrupted. She's devastated. She tells him she had a full confession right there. It wasn't able to be recovered. The detective tells her, look, you're not going to do this again on your own. Just meet him in a public diner, wear a wire. I'll have four of my deputies sitting in there undercover as patrons of this restaurant. See if you can get him to say it again. Having an audio recording of a confession is a murder charge. Carl and Cindy meet at a restaurant. She tells him she's still considering getting back together with him. She says, remember what you told me the other day about how you made the truck fall on Levi? Carl says, wait, this sounds like a setup, which he's absolutely correct. She says, look, check my purse for a listening device. You won't find anything. Whatever she said worked because she got Carl back on the subject. She said, remember when you said you made the truck fall on Levi? Carl is playing dumb. He's like, I didn't say that like that exactly. She said, yes, you did. Carl says he didn't push the truck, but he saw the truck fall on him and didn't do anything about it. That wouldn't be murder. That's just being an asshole at that point, which doesn't carry a murder charge. She's not able to get a confession out of him for a second time. The detective replays the audio over and over again and thinks he finally understands Carl. He says Carl doesn't think the way you and I do. This detective decides it's okay to bring Carl in for questioning. He has a game plan of how he's going to handle this and see if he can get Carl to confess. Carl is brought into the the station. Now, If he chose not to speak or if he asked for a lawyer, this would change everything and they'll miss their shot. But Carl talks. In fact, he doesn't shut up. He's just rambling. He's going on about how hard his job is and how he used to transport nuclear weapons for the Air Force. I listened to a lot of the interrogation recordings and I'm telling you guys, this detective questioning him was one of the best I've ever seen. I've listened to hundreds of hours of interrogations over the years and this was great. He used different tactics and was able to get Carl to crack eventually, but it would take almost all day sitting in a room alone with him. One thing is for sure, Carl loved to talk about himself. He's telling the detective the same thing he told police four years prior. He came home from the funeral, walked into the barn, and there was Levi with a truck crushing him. He instructed Cindy to call 911. The paramedics come and he is declared dead, case closed. He's not cracking. Carl then yells out, I didn't kill my son for money. The detective looks at him and says, who said anything about money? The detective changes up his interrogation tactics because Carl is just getting angrier and angrier. He decides the easiest way to get the ball rolling was to boost Carl's ego. That's his favorite thing, to talk about how wonderful and interesting he is. Most detectives would use a strategy towards empathy or compassion, but Carl didn't have any of those things. A typical compassion strategy would be something like, don't you want your son to rest in peace? Don't you want to put this behind you? Again, Carl didn't have anything to play on except his ego. 
The detective tells him, look, I know you were in the Air Force when you were younger. I know you've been trained to make a lot of life or death decisions on the spot. I think you saw an opportunity to make a decision about death and you hit the switch. You knew that you could make that truck fall on your son and that's what you did. You did what you were trained to do. The detective doesn't believe that, but he's just saying whatever he has to say. Carl disagreed. And the detective and Carl start arguing. The detective decides now is the time to lay into him. He begins yelling, I know what you did. I knew, you knew you could make that truck fall on your son, and that's what you did. You saw him get crushed. You saw him laying there gasping for help, and you didn't help him. He yells, I know you did that before you left for the funeral, and when you got back, you knew you would find him dead, and then it's showtime. Time to be an actor. It's time to put on a show for everyone as a grieving father. Carl and the detective begin arguing. The detective knows it's time to reel it back in, time for the ego strategy again. Carl loved being the center of attention, and they had to give him what he wanted. They both calm down, and the detective tells Carl, I want to help you. Are you going to give me a chance to help you? The detective listened to Carl talk for hours about himself and injuries he's received over the years. He's got bad luck, blah, blah, blah. I know it had to be torture for this detective to listen to this guy go on about himself for hours. He tells the detective he feels sick. Finally, Carl begins to crack. He tells the detective a different version of what happened. He said he found Levi dead before he ever went to the funeral. He's not saying he did it. He just says, I found him there dead, went to the funeral, came back and pretended I just found him. The detective knows he's making progress, but there's more to the story. Finally, Carl admitted everything. He says he caused the truck to fall on Levi. He left it there. He went to the funeral with Cindy, came home, and pretended he just found him and told Cindy to call 911. Carl is then arrested for second-degree murder. Carl's family is sickened by the news. They already had their suspicions, but to know that he really killed his son was awful to hear and think about. This kid was just starting to do well in life. He had two little girls. How anyone could hurt their child is beyond me. Carl pled not guilty at his arraignment. Now, the state has to prove that he's guilty. The police interview was the most damning evidence they had, so a big, long trial is getting ready to begin that could last weeks. But the day before his trial was set to begin, Carl's attorney says Carl wants to plead guilty of second-degree murder. By doing this, in exchange, Carl would receive the minimum sentence, which is 15 years to life. So Carl's first wife, Christina, her family is out in California, and they're watching all of this unfold, and they're nervous. They see this as an opportunity to maybe have an investigation into Christina's death 30 years earlier, and it happens. Christina's case is reopened. It was going to have to be handled by the California courts, though. Remember, Carl is in New York and serving his prison sentence there. He hasn't been back to California since the fire. The, the fire marshal from 30 years ago, the one I told you about earlier that wondered why Carl didn't make more of an effort to break down the boarded up window, 
Well, he's long been retired, but before he retired, he took two boxes filled with notes and items from Christina's fire and kept them in his home basement. He knew someday someone was going to subpoena him to come talk about it, and he wanted to be prepared. The fact that this man did this really saved the day and the entire case. He knew Carl started that fire. He just couldn't convince the DA to get him arrested. The DA saw Carl as this widowed dad of three small children, not a murderer. The good news is there's no statute of limitations on murder cases. Anything else has a statute of limitations, though. Aaron and Katie, who were the two small girls that Carl helped get through the window, well, they're in their 30s now. They're glad their dad is in prison for murdering their brother, but now they have to deal with the fact that their dad could have killed their mother as well. The girls are heartbroken, and it's really just a sad situation all around. They say no family should ever have to go through what their family has gone through. Christina's sister is happy that he pled guilty, but now she knows he had to have something to do with killing Christina. Any person that's willing to go as far as to killing their own adult child would have no problem killing their spouse. 30 years after Christina's death, her family is gathered in court. This includes her elderly mother, who has lived the last 30 years without her daughter. Carl is shackled and put on a plane and flown to California, where he would be tried for the murder of his wife in 1991. I listened to the state's attorney describe what Christina's last minutes of her life were like in that bathroom. She went into excruciating details of exactly how she died, and it wasn't easy to listen to. She said Christina was alone, naked, and clutching a wash rag to her face to stop the smoke from getting to her lungs. It was a slow, painful death, and Christina was a mother who couldn't reach her children and was thinking her children were dying in their bedrooms as they slept. Carl set the fire outside the bathroom door, and then everything happened exactly how I described to you in the beginning of this story. 17 years later, he killed his son. In between those two deaths, he killed his horses. That detective that we all really liked that interrogated Carl about his son's death, well, the prosecution flies him out to California to take the stand as a way to say, look, he admitted to me that he killed his son. He's got to be 100% guilty in this case as well. It's called a pattern case. One thing we didn't know about Levi's case that doesn't come out until later, Carl admitted that Levi was still alive when he left to go to the funeral. Levi died a slow, painful death, just like his mother. Carl knew that if he left him there, he would be dead by the time he got back. A lot of things come out in court about Christina's death. Her sister took the stand and said that the board on the window wasn't there when she visited her sister a couple weeks prior. Carl says he couldn't break down the board because he had extensive injuries from breaking the windows to get his kids out. One thing that made the entire courtroom gasp was when Christina's sister told the court that the day after the fire, she was standing in the hallway of the funeral home with Carl, and she tells him, I want to see my sister. I want to say goodbye to her. Carl says, no, you can't see her. She asks why, and he looks at her, and he says, because your sister is a crispy critter. She also talked about how he moved away with the kids four days after Christina's death. On March 17, 2020, Carl was found guilty by a jury of first-degree murder of Christina. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. 
he still says to this day that he is innocent. Hopefully now both mother and son can rest in peace. That's it for today. Rest in peace to Christina and Levi, as well as the three Belgian horses. Take care and much love to you all.